May we be the people who recognize that our lives are no longer our own, that you have purchased us, that out of your great love you have come for us. And may we respond in surrender and as a people who are ready to receive what you have for us in your love. We pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are wrapping up Matthew chapter 5 tonight and wrapping up this section that we spent the last two weeks on and then tonight. And then uh, next week we will be together in the big auditorium walking through the Stations of the Cross. The following week uh, will be Easter and then we'll come back into the Sermon on the Mount. After that, um, I want to read you this passage that we've spent the last two weeks on, along with the last uh, several verses that we haven't talked about yet, that we'll talk about a little bit more tonight, and then we'll get into it. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, If we're friends on Facebook, you may have seen a little bit of this this week, but uh, on Wednesday... Cinemark showed the original Karate Kid movie uh, from 1984. If you're, if you're not hip to this, on Monday, on most uh, Wednesdays and another day of the week that is not relevant because we're all gathered here when it happens, uh, Cinemark shows classic films. And the definition of classic is all-encompassing from really old classics. I saw Giant uh, at Cinemark last year to movies like Back to the Future and The Karate Kid, true classics, um, in other words. And uh, the, the thing about The Karate Kid for me is in the summer of 1980, this movie came out in 1984. In the summer of 1985, I turned 10 years old, and we didn't own a VCR yet. I didn't get taken to see The Karate Kid in the theater Uh, when I was nine, which I haven't forgiven my parents fully for until this week. Um, But uh, the summer that I was 10, I came down to Plantersville, Texas, and stayed with my cousin and my uncle and aunt and cousins who lived in Plantersville, and they had a VCR. And we got our hands on a copy of The Karate Kid, and in a two-week period, we watched that movie many, 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 many times. And it became sort of the defining movie of my childhood, even though somehow I never took karate. Um, And so it wasn't really about the karate exactly, but... It became this, you know, as we all have in certain ways, this sort of seminal part of my childhood. And so I saw that it was coming. I took Aiden and a couple of his buddies. Um, and it was fa- as as terrific as you would imagine it was. Um, 
But as I was watching it, uh, I promise I wasn't desperately looking for a way to use a scene from The Karate Kid as an illustration for my sermon tonight, but it it worked out really well that way. Um, And as I was watching this scene that you're about to see, uh, it it felt to me like, okay, this is what Jesus is doing as he takes us through this sort of course that we've been on in Matthew chapter five of difficult things that he's asking us to do to reshape our lives that don't always make sense to us. I had a great conversation after last Sunday night, which was great. I've had a lot of really good feedback. Thank you all who shared and who participated in that. Uh, But Robert Garcia, who's a philosophy professor, and I had this really good conversation where he pointed out Uh, The way in which people thought in this time was more based on building virtue in your life than following life and following rules. And I've asked him to share more about that with us. So if you want to provide peer pressure uh, to him to do that in a few weeks, because I think it's a really helpful way of understanding what Jesus is doing in general and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount here. Uh, but this, this scene from the movie felt to me like a perfect illustration of what we talked about and what I see Jesus doing with us. So this is a really iconic scene. You're gonna laugh a little bit, try to actually see what's happening here uh, beyond your laughter at 1984 cinema, okay? If we got it. Oh, you know what? I bet we lost it when it crashed earlier. We've had, uh, oh, I can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Act it out. I, I will tell you while Aaron is salvaging the video, we've, we've had problems with the computer tonight. I think Mr. Miyagi is too much for modern technology. Um, but uh, I, I was sitting by Aiden in the theater, and only about four times during the movie did I say a line to him that was about to be said. Um, and I assured him afterwards, I could have done that the whole movie. Um, and he was like, I was really confused the first two lines because I thought you were like repeating something funny that was just said, but I didn't hear what you said. And then all of a sudden they said it on the screen. So are we good? All right, here we go. Now show me sand floor. How did you do that? Shut up! Sand floor. Stand up. Show me sand Sandoflor. Sandoflor. Big soccer. Sandoflor. Sandoflor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, off. Concentrate. Look at my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me paint a fence. Up. Done. Up. Done. Up. Done. Other side. Look, I. Always look, I. Show me paint the house. Side, side. Lock list. Side, side. Side, side. 
Yes. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes! 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 Show me pen to fence. Yes! 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 Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand of floor. Let me say, first of all, if anyone ever tries to kick you like that, don't try the sand the floor technique. It's painful. Um, and then you can't use your arms to defend yourself after you get kicked in the arms over and over. <clears throat> I say that from experience of testing all this out when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, what I love about that uh, is that for days and days and days, he's had this kid coming to his house washing his cars, waxing his cars, painting his fence, his house. Most of you have seen the movie and know this, but it's making him crazy, and all he wants to do is learn how to punch and kick, right? And so this is the moment when it finally comes, to, he brings it together and says, this is what I've, I've been doing uh, in training you, and all of these unrelated, sort of labor-intensive, extreme, difficult things suddenly make sense. And the message is, you're so eager to get out and fight the world, uh, but, but what you have to learn first is this sense of yourself. You have to learn a sense of discipline, a sense of how to take what the world is bringing at you. And I love that he even repeatedly says, always look me in the eye, right? And there's, there's a sense in which, to me, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to get, first of all, our gaze on him and on the Father and he's taking us through these rituals that in and of themselves aren't always going to make perfect sense, but that together are forming us into the kind of people that we're supposed to be. And the kinds of things he asks us to do require us to die to ourselves. They require us to take this thing that Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 seriously. If you want to become my follower, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. When, you lose, when you're willing to lose your life, that's when you're going to find real life. And then uh, this section that we're going to look at specifically tonight ends with, as, as I talked about two weeks ago, this sentence that can be really difficult for us uh, if we don't understand it in the broader context of what he's saying. He's saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he doesn't mean morally be perfect all the time, that I have an expectation that from this moment forward, you can perform perfectly morally. Some of this is translation, some of it is cultural, um, but it's meant to say, do not accept the imperfection of the old ways, the ways of the world that are passing away. 
just because they come naturally to you, because that's what you know, and that's what's familiar, and that's what feels self-protective. Don't accept those imperfect ways. Instead, be remade in the image of God, which is, by the way, perfect by embracing the ways of God. Paul uses a similar word at the end of Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. There's this same spirit of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's calling us into a reshaping of our lives that is based on the perfection of God's will and God's purpose and God's character. Jesus, the scriptures say, is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1 says it that way. The passage we read just a little bit ago that Ethan read from Colossians says something like, Jesus is the fullness of God in human form. This is what it looks like. This is what God really looks like when he takes control of a person. So as he as Jesus teaches and lives this radically new way of life, we see who we're made to be in him. His call here when he says be perfect is embrace who you're made to be. Let God make you like him. Let him remake you in his perfect image. But that's kind of the exclamation point on this sweeping call of Jesus in chapter 5. Starts with the Beatitudes. He moves into this declaration of uh, our identity as we embrace God in new ways. We become light in a dark world. He then begins to open up this new way of living in terms that we can understand. He, He tells us, I didn't come to undo the law. I came to show you what the law, what God's way looks like, fully embodied in human form. Um, And then we come to this section that we've been in and that we conclude today where he gives us a glimpse of the life and the reality of the kingdom in real moments and real circumstances of our lives. And it's this passage where he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what you've been told for all of these years. But I'm once again telling you something different. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He says, this is how you live into your identity as children of the Father who made all of those people and who cares about them all still. They all live uh, at his, um, under his power and under his good pleasure in the world. And then he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a distinction that he's leading us to here, a different way of living. He actually says here, if you do things this way, you are no different than the rest of the world, right? So that's, I don't, I didn't make you, I didn't redeem you to be just like the rest of the world. I made you and redeemed you to be different. Jeff preached on this concept of loving our enemies not too long ago. So I'm going to take a little bit wider view of what I think is happening here instead of uh, getting down into the nitty gritty, which he did a great job of, of what it looks like um, in some specific ways to love your enemies. Uh, I think the word here about how we view and interact with our enemies is clear. And essentially that word is as followers of Jesus 
we're putting an end to that natural, instinctive way of seeing people as enemies, that tendency to see people who oppose us or who we oppose or who scare us or who threaten us as our enemies. And we're embracing a new way of God. And this way of God is to see even the people who hate us and do us harm as humans, um, to see them as people who are loved by God and who are made in his image. Paul echoes this idea after he says what he said that we just read in Romans 12 about giving up our lives and being reshaped by the will of God. A little further down in chapter 12, he says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This way of living that Jesus talks about and that Paul talks about, it's by the standards of the world, it's, it's crazy talk. And as we talked about last week, I think it's important for us to just acknowledge that so that we can deal with it and not be put off by it in some way and not get caught in that muddle of this language being, on the one hand, so familiar to us that we miss how revolutionary it is, or on the other hand, uh, falling into that trap where we hear the difficulty of it and just sort of respond in bewilderment or by avoiding it. I think we have to take it uh, at face value. And this whole stream that Jesus is taking us into of rearranging our thoughts about how we live in the world when we're threatened or when we're wounded, this idea that subverts and inverts our understanding of strength and weakness, truly our understanding of life and death is a hard teaching. It's okay for us to say that out loud. There are times in the scriptures, there's this great scene in John chapter 6, where Jesus is actually telling people, if, if you want to live, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, which anyone without that concept built in your religious understanding would go, that's weird talk. And so people did. And not only the people who were already opposing him, but his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can, who can accept this? <laughs> um, and Jesus again says, a lot of this is hard, but it's the way to real life. You're going to find life by being willing to lose it. So it's okay to acknowledge that it's a hard teaching. And I think understanding that, that this is truly a reimagining of what constitutes real life and what power our weakness and our sacrifice and even our death uh, actually have, or more, more precisely, um, what power those things don't have to threaten us in the way that we think they do. I think understanding that is crucial to accepting the hard teaching of Jesus that real life is going to come through death, not just in our salvation, not just in our ultimate physical death, but in, in all of these deaths to ourself along the way. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this in terms of our physical deaths. And I think if we can look backwards into our lives through what he has to say about our deaths, I think it gives us some real insight in what Jesus is saying here. Um, 
In, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, what is sown, he's talking about our bodies when, they are, when we die and our bodies are put into the ground. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. He's talking about our, our actual physical deaths. But again, I think if we can look at our lives through that lens, uh, not only because um, our, our deaths could be the highest price, they could be a price that we're asked to pay at some point in this denying of ourselves and following Jesus, but also because I think it, it sheds, even if that's not our story, it sheds light. This act of faith uh, in every moment that we have to surrender our way, what's instinctive to us is like this. We're sowing into the ground. We are something physical, something worldly, something natural is dying and something by the power of the Spirit is being raised in its place. Um, every time, every moment of worldly surrender and death, we, we face in faith that the kingdom of resurrection is what we'll sow when we die to ourselves in those moments. And, and Paul's words here are not just empty theory or musing about life after death. He goes on at the end of this passage to say, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in, in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It will at times feel like it's in vain, but these deaths will result in resurrections. I think this is the journey into being able to pray in faith with our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a surrender of my will and a true desire to see the kingdom of God come through me, even if it costs me. When the way to the kingdom coming sometimes is us having to sow our perishable selves, the things that we value that are passing away, our possessions, our rights, to sow those things to put them in the ground, believing that something eternal and more important will grow up from that ground. So I think all of this that Jesus is saying here is about two things. Um, it's about, first of all, us receiving the life that we're made for. He's not only calling us into mission. He's not all only calling us into submission to his will or into mission in the world. He's calling us to receive the goodness of the life that we were made for, number one. And number two, he is calling us, and I believe it, is, it comes out of that first piece, but he is calling us to say with our lives and not just with our words that this is real life. This way of living um, is real life and not allowing anything else, any other agenda that we carry around to get in the way of that message. So those are the two things that I think he's doing. The key to the first, I think, to understanding that all of this, including the call to love your enemies and do these things that seem impossible or counterintuitive, um, all of this is to make us alive in the way that we're made to be alive. I think the key to the, that is embracing and cultivating an inner life in our spirits that finds security and hope in God. Um, Henry Nowen it is writing here, I want to read you a passage of something he wrote, but he's writing here about the relationship between his own personal ability to respond to others 
especially people who annoy him or who oppose him, people who might be somewhere on the spectrum from irritant to enemy. Um, and his ability to, to respond to those people in the way Jesus suggests, the connection between that and his inner life with God. And he says this, I'm discovering how important the inner space is. When it is there, it seems that I can receive many concerns of others in it without becoming depressed. When I sense that inner quiet place, I can pray for many others and feel a very intimate relationship with them. Now I know it is not I who pray, but the Spirit of God who prays in me. Indeed, when God's glory dwells in me, there is nothing too far away, nothing too painful, nothing too strange or too familiar that it cannot contain God's glory, he means, that God's glory cannot contain and renew by its touch. As we lose our life, we find it. We die. The spirit of life rises within us is part of what he's describing about his inner life here. He's talking about losing even his own voice in prayer, in a sense, and allowing the spirit to order and voice his prayers. That something is happening in his inner being that replaces that inner dialogue, that instinctive response to people around him with the voice of the Spirit. And so if, if the prayers in those moments are coming from the Spirit, there's a reordering of the inner life that's happening that's going to affect um, ultimately the outer life. But that has to start inside of us. I want to be really clear that we can't just go through this. I do think there's something Jesus is doing in trying to reorder our inner life by reordering our outer life. I think it's a both and and not an either or, and I want to be really clear about that. I think he's calling us into these behaviors and these patterns of practice and self-denial that change who we are in the inside, but it can't only go one way. Both have to be true. There has to be also this reordering happening of our inner life that affects our outer life. It has to start inside us and not make this just about a mental exercise or about a new set of rules to follow or social practices to perform. It can't just be about our determination to do what's right because Jesus said so or about our desire to bring some kind of new justice to the world. It can't just be about those things. It has to first be about a rebirth, including an inner rebirth and a receiving of God's nearness and God's presence in our spirit. That has to be present. If it's not, we will grow weary. <laughs> we will lose heart. Um, and we will feel like this, this is in vain. I'm doing something that costs me everything, and I get nothing from it. What's the point of this? Um, we have to remember uh, and have to be reordered in our spirit, or this won't make sense, and we'll lose, lose motivation. We, because the call here is to lose our own lives. Daily, lose our own lives, moment by moment, give up those natural instincts. Um, but not just daily. There's a call here to make a decision, to say, I'm going to order my days those way, th that way. I'm going to make this big decision to follow Jesus, but it just doesn't happen all at once. It requires those daily moment by moment changes. And as we do that, what Jesus is after here is us receiving God's love, God's approval, God's presence in the quiet places that can't be touched by anyone else. And I think you see that in people who are able to persevere with, with 
a world around them that devalues them, that threatens them, and stand in the face of that. We talked about that with examples from the civil rights movement last week. You're able to stand in the face of absurdity. There's even scenes in The Karate Kid that reflect this, where Mr. Miyagi at multiple points is surrounded by men who are bigger and stronger than him, men who are hurling racial insults at him, uh, and he's unmoved because something is ordered inside of him that says, these things aren't really a threat to me. And that's the picture of our inner lives being reordered so that when the external things come, we don't feel that fight or flight response. We don't feel fearful because we've been changed. We have something inside of us that has become securely God's. And that makes this kind of life that Jesus is talking about possible because the inner seat of our soul can't be threatened by anyone or anything if it is securely God's. So we don't fear loss of power or money or whatever to someone else because we've seen and we've embraced God's power over our lives and in our lives. We've been secured by the power and by the love of the Father. Okay, so that's, that's the first part of what I think Jesus is doing, reordering us internally uh, into the life that we were made to live, securing us in the love of the Father, calling us to receive his life, the life that we're made to live. We, we sang um, about this again tonight, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's real life, and that's what he's calling us to. The second part of this, as that happens, uh, we more clearly see that the most important thing we can give our outer life to is God's work to reorder the whole world with his love and by his power. So the inner transformation happens, and we then understand that this is why, this is why I'm alive. This is why I exist, to declare to the world who Jesus is. And so Jesus, I think, throughout this passage that we've been looking at, um, and certainly culminating with this instruction on loving our enemies is trying to give us a vivid picture of what it looks like to say to the world, life is not about me. Life is about God reconciling the world by way of the cross and redeeming it through the unlimited power of his resurrection. That's why we're alive. We're alive for our lives to testify to that. And I think far too often that becomes a segment of our lives and we get caught in the muddle and it's very difficult of just trying to get through our days and all the other important things in our lives and we lose sight of everything about my inner life is supposed to remind me that this is true, that God loves me and that he has changed and redeemed me. And everything about my outer life is supposed to testify to the world that God is love, that God loves you, and that he has come to redeem you and to, and to give you the life that you were made for. And that's the gospel. This reminder that life is not about me, that it's about Jesus reconciling us by way of the cross and about Jesus redeeming the world through the power of his resurrection. That's the gospel. And that's what we're called to live and to declare. Our inner lives are changed by the presence of Jesus within us and our outer lives reflect that by announcing and demonstrating the presence of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. I say all of that around this passage of scripture for this reason, because um, I think Jesus is taking us to a place 
when he takes us through the things that he's taken us through in Matthew chapter 5, that we fully understand we belong to him. And the only way for us to walk as he's calling us to walk is to lose our life and for his life to be lived through us. This, because it's extreme. It's such an extreme revolution of the way that we naturally think and of the way that the world thinks. And we have to understand that it's wholesale change so that we become people who don't allow any other agenda in our lives to eclipse the agenda of Jesus and the gospel. Um, And this is where I sense that just in a broader way and then in individual ways for me and for a lot of us, we tend to lose our way. The church has lost her way, I think, a little bit, and we tend to to lose our way. Um, If the world is rejecting the church because they find the cross, the message of the cross itself to be foolishness, that's not our error. Um, The scriptures actually tell us that that will happen, that the world will find the message of the cross to be foolishness. So when that happens, I don't think it's, it's time for us to say, gosh, what have we done wrong that everybody doesn't love us or doesn't love what we're saying or what we're doing. Um, but I want us to be very clear that what the Bible says is that what the world will find foolish is the message of the cross. It's pretty specific in that. That's not cover for us to shrug off or defiantly rebel against the world's rejection of our hundreds of other quirks and agendas that we've picked up and carried into the world along the way. It's not reason to demonize the world when the world opposes us or opposes our cultural priorities. Um, And frankly, I think it's become far too common and far too easy for the church to act like the world is rejecting the message of the cross when in fact... Um, some of the time the rejection that we feel for the world is the world reacting to the church's own rejection of the message of the cross as a governing reality for all of our lives. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here's the, here, here is Thad's short, uh, off-the-cuff, more or less, version of the message of the cross. In our brokenness, in our weakness, and in our rebellion— in us being enemies of God, in our sin, God reached out to us, his enemies. The scriptures use that language to to define who we are to God when we have rebelled against him and his ways. In all of that, God reached out to us in love and to demonstrate his love and to get to us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to be connected to and be in fellowship with us. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He was crucified. We sang the first song we sang tonight. We sang the same God who was crucified. He himself was crucified to get to his enemies, to express love to his enemies. When he did that, it paid for all of our ugliness and freed us from the death that our sin ultimately marches us toward when its power hasn't been sent to the cross. That's the message of the cross. When he did that, he reordered the universe. He demonstrated that the ultimate show of power in the the sort of pinnacle of the universe, the ultimate show of power is not conquering an enemy by force of will, but dying for the enemy in sacrificial love. And then demonstrating that even in that dying, even in that giving away of life, the enemy holds no power because Jesus himself 
triumphed over death. That's the message of the cross. And the world that embraces power and money and violence and self-interest, the world that tells me I should value me and my desires above everything else will reject that because the message of the cross demands sacrifice. It It demands death of self. Not us dying first, God dying first. God sacrificing first and us responding to him and to the world around us in kind, in obedience. The world will reject that. Scriptures say so, we can see it with our eyes because it's about self-denial and it's about um, God having power and authority. And we have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that on a daily basis. But when the world is rejecting a church or Christians who are jockeying for power, a church or Christians who are embracing the world's values and utilizing the world's means, we shouldn't confuse that with them rejecting the message of the cross. And I think this is important because I think this is part of where Jesus is taking us, both in the specific message to how we relate to those outside the church. He says, if you just greet your brothers and sisters, how are you any different? He's telling us how to greet those outside the church and not just greet in a cordial, like, how do we exchange pleasantries, but how do our lives respond to those people? He's telling us to love the people even who persecute us. And the reason for that is not just because he's nice, it's because we're supposed to embody the cross. Our lives are supposed to speak the power and the message of the cross in all of those situations so that they will see and hear the message of the cross. And when we allow other things to eclipse that priority in our lives, the world will also reject (laughs) our anger and our selfishness and our grasping for power. And in that moment, they're not rejecting the message of the cross. In fact, sometimes, and I'm seeing it more and more, people outside the church, and some of these are people who, who you can say, well, they don't really know or understand anything about the gospel. And some of them, frankly, are people who have left the church and can quote scripture with you chapter and verse, who are saying, this doesn't look anything like the cross. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? And we have to own that, and we have to respond to that uh, in humility. It matters when the world can look at the church and see something other than the message of the cross, and tragically, in some cases, something opposite to the message of the cross. They can see a people who are uninterested in sacrificial love and who are fully taken with the protection or expansion of worldly power and dominion. And let me just say really clearly, that's not... I don't, that's not a big problem in this crowd. I'm not preaching this sermon because I think we have this pervasive problem, but it's, there's a, there is a constant cultural creep to this that comes into the church. And I think, number one, I, it's important that we always remember that Jesus is not a slight modifier of our lives. He is calling us to something extreme so that the world can see the cross. The stakes are high, and we need to always remember that. And number two, frankly, I want us to be a prophetic voice in the church that is willing to own 
where the world is not pushing back against the cross, they're pushing back against our sin and sometimes against our own rejection of our, our un, own unwillingness to lay down our lives. I want us to be a voice that stands up in the church and says, that's not how Jesus calls us to live. Not because we're perfect at it, but because we're responding in a big way and in a daily way to this call of Jesus. Paul gives us a pretty stark caution about this danger. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. There's a context to this, uh, but, but the context for this moment, uh, what you need to know is the context is things that are actually okay in, in a sort of uh, abstract sense, okay with God or not sinful to do, are the, is the kind of right he's talking about here. So all the more imagine things that are at odds with the way that God has called us to live. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I just think it's important for us to remember how, how high the stakes are. That things that, if, if we're put in an interrogation room and asked to say, honestly, how important is this thing to your life? We would say, probably not the most important thing. And yet at times it grows into an agenda or a part of our life that becomes an obstacle for people around us who see that before they see the cross or think they have to get over that or swallow that before they can get to the cross. A little later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this about the urgency of this. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and see, we are alive, as punished and yet not killed." as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. It is of ultimate importance that our inner lives get reordered so we know what is real as we face the world around us, so that we can speak and live in demonstration of the power of the cross. What he describes here is the way of Jesus, the way he is building into us when he calls us into these illogical shifts in how we think and live. It's a way that has to be cultivated in us before it can fully grow up from us and through us. And that happens in many ways. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to point his followers to the essential shaping practice of prayer. And he's going to use these words. Band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, which we're going to say these together in just a moment. And then we're going to sing some of them together. Uh, I want us to pray them and then to sing them, um, and we'll get into them more as we, as we move further into this passage in the weeks to come. As we say them tonight and as we sing them, I want to encourage you to let them shape your mind and let them shape your heart. 
And no matter how in you feel with Jesus right now or don't feel, no matter how strong you think your faith is or your faith is not, I want to just invite you with these words uh, that we're going to speak, that we're going to pray, um, and that we're going to sing to take a risk, to open yourself up to being formed by these words, which are not only an expression of our faith and devotion to Jesus and his way, though they are that, but they're a reminder that his way is not about how in we feel or about how deep our faith is or is not, but about the strength of his love for us. So let's stand and uh, pray these words together. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. So don't just pray it by rote because the words are probably a little different than the way you have this memorized. And the last part of what we usually say isn't in the Bible. Newsflash, if you uh, didn't know that thine in the kingdom part is not actually in the scriptures. But Jesus looks in uh, the next chapter of scripture, he looks at his followers as he has called them into this new way of living. And he encourages them to pray as a way of being shaped and as a way of changing. And he says, when you pray, pray this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come.